With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance a nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hey there, welcome to the program. Uh, Coming to you from the Lives in the Balance offices in Portland, Maine. Glad that you were able to listen in today for another edition of Collaborative Problem Solving at School. Uh, we're going to do mostly email today. It's taking us a little while to get the um, Anytown Elementary lined up for this year. And, of course, next week we have the educators panel uh, on next Monday. But uh, we'll get Anytown Elementary School going soon enough. But um, we've uh, gotten some good questions by email as well. So that's going to be the plan for today. Actually, an outstanding day to call in with any questions that you might have. We almost never get calls on this particular program. The parents' program, we're much more likely to get calls. But if you want to call in, it's 646-727-2691. We've got plenty of questions to last us for the entire program, but um, callers always take priority on the program. So if you are uh, having difficulty with a challenging student at school or have any questions about using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems or getting stuck in some facet of doing Plan B, um, well, that's the number to call. And um, But we're going to jump in now. Let's see. This is, this is one that uh, felt urgent, so we're actually putting it at the top of the list. All right, here we go. Long one uh, to begin the program. Dr. Green, I recently switched to a different school district. Um, However, I met with the teacher and student I began CPS with last year on my last day with that district. During the session, we addressed the unsolved problem of why I'm going to call him Seth hides in the closet and sits on top of the boxes. He's been doing this every day after his work is finished. The very articulate Seth explained that the noise in the classroom bothers him and that he likes the quiet, dark, and cool space to retreat to. He also said the jackets feel like his mom's soft pillows. This explanation led the teacher to ask him if the reason he was sitting at lunch alone today was due to the noise. 
Uh, Seth explained that the lunchroom gets loud and he can't sit with his friends when it is noisy in the lunchroom. Anyway, the teacher explained her feelings, and Sam and the teacher agreed to a quiet corner in the classroom where she would put pillows, headphones, etc. The other unsolved problem was during social studies class. First of all, that's, a, that's fantastic. That was me talking. Now back to the question. The other unsolved problem was during social studies class, the kids would gather on the carpet, and Sam would have his back to the teacher and read a book, rather than looking at the book that the teacher was reading to the class. Two of them agreed to try to move the carpet away from the books to see if that helped Sam. Sam explained that the carpet was so close to his favorite books and he cannot help himself. My questions are more geared to the insight Sam gave us with unsolved problem number one, the closet issue. However, I hope this summary provides a little bit of a picture of this really creative and bright child. So here's question number one. This explanation from the closet issue led me to seek out the occupational therapist to see if she can do an informal observation. I thought she may have some more ideas on how to help Seth if this is a sensory issue that the teacher can bring to the table during the problem-solving stage. He has a history of unsolved problems that always seem to lead to him running out of rooms and hiding out with the teachers, not understanding why. In addition, I just read a book about sensory issues, and it seemed to describe him. Did I do the right thing with this information that Sam told me? Uh, you have a recorded session in the listening library that discusses that interventions for ADHD and sensory issues will be different. I'm not sure if I handle this information right. But if, it's, if it is sensory, do we need to have a more sensory-based approach? In addition, Sam's father asked me, excuse me, Seth's father asked me if he should consider getting Seth evaluated. As soon as he asked, Mom disagreed. However, I heard your session in the listening library that said that a neuropsych evaluation wouldn't hurt because it can show cognitive strengths. I think the father was referring more to a diagnosis. I told him that I don't know Seth well enough to really make that judgment, but his question has really been bothering me. Seth's parents are both attorneys, and Dad is always doodling while meeting with me because that helps him listen. During CPS with Seth, he starts all fall over the place to such a playing with the blinds and squeezing into corners, but by the end, Seth is sitting down on his accord. Regardless of his movement, uh, Seth is always able to articulate. Also, Seth's behavior never gets in the way of his classwork. Seth never runs into the closet until he finishes his homework. I asked him about that, and he explained that the noise does not bother him until his work is finished. Repeat of questions. One, was it right to have the OT look at him, occupational therapist? Am I heading in the right direction with the info Seth gave me? Two, what should I tell Dad about getting an evaluation? Three, am I missing anything? Uh, that's a uh, great question. By the way, we do have a caller, so as soon as I finish with this uh, email, we'll take the caller from area code 763. And I have a feeling I know who it is. We'll see. We had a mom call from area code 763 this morning, and I'm thinking that she told the teacher of her son that she was welcome to call this program, and hopefully she did. But let me finish this one first, then we'll pop on over to the phone call. All right. Was it right to have the OT look at him? Why not? Um, uh, no downside in having an occupational therapist take a look at a kid who seems to have some sensory issues. Two caveats. 
Number one, that doesn't mean that an occupational therapist is actually going to feel like he or she can help this student. There are some things that occupational therapy is helpful with and other things that aren't that it's not so helpful with. Um, I don't know if the occupational therapist is going to feel like she can help Sam, Seth, just because Seth has – why do I keep saying that? Just because Seth has some – Potential sensory issues does not mean that an occupational therapist thinks that he's going to need that kind of help. And by the way, that doesn't mean we can't solve problems with Sam that are related to some sensory issues. This is the interesting thing. Sometimes we stumble across some unsolved problems that are related to sensory issues and we stops trying to solve the problems and decide instead to refer the kid to the occupational therapist. It doesn't have to be that way. That doesn't mean you shouldn't refer the kid to the occupational therapist, but it also doesn't mean that just because you've made that referral, there isn't some good problem solving that can be done. Uh, let's say we stumble across an unsolved problem that seems related to language processing delays. Great idea to have the kid evaluated. Great idea to have the uh, a speech and language therapist, take a good look at the kid, decide if he or she can be helpful to the student, but that doesn't mean that we're done solving problems. We still have problems to solve. And by the way, it could be months before we get a uh, read or a report from the language therapist or the occupational therapist to let us know if what they think is going on and whether they think that they can be helpful. In the meanwhile... We've got problems to solve. Let's keep solving them. So whether or not a referral is made doesn't necessarily have implications for whether we're actually still engaged in problem solving or not. We are. And here's the cool part. Even without the uh, occupational therapist, teacher and student came up with a solution to the um, noise uh, issue and the dark, quiet space and mom's pillows issue. They didn't need the occupational therapist to solve that problem. Find to make the referral. Find to get more information from an expert. Find to see if that expert thinks that they have something to offer. And find to keep solving problems in the meantime. What should you tell dad about getting an evaluation? Well, Evaluations never hurt. Always more information. Uh, you know, there's evaluations can cost money if they're going to do it independently. Uh, schools like to have a good reason to do an evaluation before they have to spend the money. So if well, I can tell you where when I refer kids for more evaluation, when I feel like my expertise in the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems isn't clarifying things to a degree that helps me feel like I really understand what's going on with a kid. Then I'm making the referral. Then I need more info, the kind that maybe testing would give me. Uh, if dad's thinking that he needs a diagnosis, um, I'm probably not thinking that the primary purpose of an evaluation is to get a diagnosis. If um, a school system isn't going to give a kid help unless he gets a diagnosis, then a diagnosis can, can become important. Um, 
what a shame that would be if a school system feels that they need a diagnosis before they can start helping a student who already clearly needs help. So find to get an evaluation. Always good to get additional information, but I like to have a good reason to have a school system do the eval or to have parents spend money on it, um, and that is that I need clarity beyond that which my own expertise or the expertise of another mental health professional or and the information that I would gather from the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems hasn't clarified the kids' difficulties to the degree that I feel like I understand as well as I would like to. Question number three, are you missing anything? Oops, our caller has left. We do not have a caller anymore. Bummer. Uh, sorry to have made them wait, or maybe they were just listening in. Hard to say. Are you missing anything? Um... Well, if you're doing the model the way the model probably ought to be done and you don't have this already, it would be nice to have an assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems done. Good to have that discussion with the people who work with Seth, parents included, to make sure that everybody's crystal clear on lagging skills and so that we have a nice comprehensive list of unsolved problems so that we can set our priorities so that we know what we're working on and we know what we're not working on. We don't want to work on everything. That came up on the parents' program this morning. Um, don't work on everything. Working on everything is overwhelming and pretty much guarantees that no problems will get solved. Um, so it would be nice to have, a, if you haven't already, good to have a discussion with the ALSIP as the discussion guide. Um, if that's missing, I would do that. Beyond that, I can't think of anything. Sounds like you and Seth's teacher are busy solving problems collaboratively with Seth. I'm good. Thanks for your questions. And I hope they got answered. Let's go to a different one. I am a great fan of CPS and have taken some of the training provided by your organization. My concern is how well this model works with children who are emotionally dysregulated. Now, now this is me talking. Um, well, that's who this model was created for children who are emotionally dysregulated, back to the email, and are mentally handicapped, in parentheses, IQ below 70. With the lack of verbal skills, how effective is this model? What adaptations do you recommend? What research has been done on the use of CPS with this population? All great questions. There are a meaningful number of programs in the listening library on uh, using collaborative problem solving with kids who are um, limited in the language processing and communication realm or completely nonverbal. But let's do it. Uh, we haven't talked about that this broadcast season yet, so 
let's jump in. Um, there are a few adjustments that can be made to the model for kids who fit this description. Um, in other words, kids who aren't able to engage in the uh, verbal give and take uh, that is involved in doing sort of typical uh, collaborative problem solving. Um, so a few of the obvious things. You, you can use pictures to depict uh, unsolved problems, concerns, solutions. Um, Google Images is extremely helpful there. There are um, all kinds of different products out there. If you want to buy something that have different images on magnets that give uh, kids a way of communicating with us um, without need of words. Um, so I, I find that the model is effective with kids who are compromised in the language processing and communication realm, but it, it does look a little bit different because there's obviously not the verbal give and take that would be involved in a kid who had the language processing skills to participate in that manner. Um, some kids, and I don't, IQ is not my reference point here, but there are some kids, some people call them lower functioning. I try to stay away from that term, but now you know who I'm talking about. Some kids aren't really able to recognize that there's that there's even a problem. They um, don't have that mentality that things are problems. They, they don't have the mentality that solutions solve problems. These are sort of very basic ways of thinking that many kids come by uh, sort of through osmosis. They know when something's a problem, and they know, perhaps because of what people have been saying to them all along, that when there's a problem, the goal is to come up with a solution. So we might have to do some more basic training with kids like that, just to help them build a vocabulary and make some connections. But the training here is really no different than the training we would do with kids with who are very young, that we do naturally um, to give them a vocabulary. Uh, and here's an example I've been using lately. Uh, one of the vocabularies we train very young kids in very early on is animals. We look at pictures of cows and we say cow. We look at pictures of pigs and we say pig. Goats, goat. And little by little, through repetition, children who are developing at a relatively typical pace uh, pick up the vocabulary. And when they see a picture of a cow, they say cow. And when they see a picture of a goat, they say goat, and pig is pig. And then what we do, and this is just basic vocabulary training and helping kids recognize a word that is associated with a particular image, in this case animals. We then, and I did this with my kids with one of those spinny things, you know, you pull the cord and the thing is pointed toward a particular animal and the animal and the machine the, the little toy makes the sound of that animal so when you have the little thing pointed at the cow and you pulled the cord you hear moo 
It is through this very basic training that we help kids begin to develop a very basic vocabulary for animals and the sounds animals make. We can do the exact same thing for kids who are compromised in the language processing and communication realm, and some of them need us to do that with problems, and so we would have to refer to something that's happening as a problem. We'd have to do that repeatedly so that the kid starts to make the connection between a problem, that word, and something not going well or something not going the way they thought it was. And then concerns. We could build a basic vocabulary of concerns. Uh, things aren't going the way they thought. I, I thought they would. Uh, something has changed. And it's not that they're saying these words, but they can point at pictures uh, with those concepts attached to them. And all the while, helped by adults who are helping these kids build a very basic vocabulary, like moo, like oink, like ba except now the vocabulary is something's not going the way you thought it would. Something has changed. You're hot. You're cold. You're thirsty. You got surprised. All basic vocabulary for things kids are concerned about. And we we can build a basic vocabulary of unsolved problems and a basic vocabulary of concerns, and if we feel that this kid will never be able to use a spoken vocabulary, then we can do all of this in pictures. And we can do the same thing with solutions. There aren't, believe it or not, most solutions fit into a few basic categories. Um, do it a different way. Ask for help. Give a little and we can use those categories to build a basic vocabulary, no different than moo, oink, ba, cow, pig, goat, to help kids build a basic vocabulary of solutions and for, to help them conceptually understand what's going on. If we don't feel that they'll ever be able to participate in this process using words, we use pictures. But it is really no different. We are just applying the extremely rudimentary strategies we use to help kids learn a new vocabulary, for example, of animals at very, very young ages. And now, irrespective of the age of the child, we are using the exact same strategy to help them develop a vocabulary of unsolved problems, concerns, solutions. Now, as I always say, my reference point for all of this is infants, infants uh, who have unsolved problems, have concerns about those unsolved problems, and with whom we collaborate. Infants have unsolved problems, uh, heat, cold, dealing with the sensory world, digesting the food that we're putting into them, 
establishing a regular sleep cycle, self-soothing, all things that infants have difficulty with. Of course, infants don't have words, so they can't tell us, but they are communicating. Every kid, even those with no words, communicate. Now, here we are willing to break one of the rules of collaborative problem-solving, um, well, especially when it comes to the concerns of the infant or the kid who doesn't have words, or any other kid who doesn't have words, I should say. Um, this is where we are willing to break the rule of not being a genius on the kid's concerns. That's a very important rule for kids who have the words, but not the best for kids who don't have the words to let us know what's going on, but are still communicating that something is wrong. We can guess. With the kids who can't let us know any other way, we can guess. Hopefully we are very astute observers, so hopefully we are good at guessing. But ask any speech and language therapist how they try to intuit what's going on with a kid, and they'll tell you they use their powers of observation. Ask any parent of a newborn who feels like they are in tune with their newborn, who has no words, and ask them how they're figuring out what's going on, and they'll tell you that they try to be very astute observers. I would call that just being a responsive parent. I would call being in tune with what's going on with a kid who's compromised in the language processing and communication realm, being an astute educator. And then what we're doing is we're coming up with solutions. And of course, maybe the student really can't participate in that process to the degree that we would like, if at all, but at least we are collaborating by trying to implement a solution. And where's the collaboration piece? We're paying very close attention to the feedback we're getting from the child and adjusting our intervention based on the feedback that we're getting. So yes, it's going to look a little different. Um, and yes, it's still possible, and yes, it can still be very productive. And by the way, if we don't think that this is doable, if we don't think that this is going to be productive, then we are left merely with thinking that the student isn't conceivably capable of participating in letting us know what's the matter and participating in solving problems. And while that may be true of an extraordinarily small fraction of kids. It's not anywhere nearly as true for anywhere nearly as many kids as we think it is. So I hope that answered the question. You can always uh, call in if I've missed something. Here's another. Hi, Dr. Green. I've been teaching for one week at a sixth grade integrated classroom in the Bronx. 
I've noticed that the students are able to pay attention before lunch but come back from lunch highly agitated, overstimulated, unmanageable. Recess is first, and then lunch is given in a large cafeteria in the basement. It is nearly impossible to teach them in the afternoon. They are literally screaming and getting up from their seats constantly. Somehow I need to calm them down after lunch. Uh, Just wondering where to turn for advice. Have you talked about this on one of your radio programs or written about a similar situation somewhere? I don't know. Um, I've kind of lost track of the topics that we've covered on the 80-some-odd programs that are in the Listening Library for Educators, but i got an idea. Let's just answer it anyways. Um, sounds like you've identified a problem that could be systemic, namely one that may be affecting kids uh, beyond your classroom. I'm sitting here wondering if other teachers in your building have uh, noticed the same thing, that it's utter chaos after lunch and that having recess and followed by lunch, not the ideal timing. So you may, not probably everybody doesn't have recess before lunch, and maybe this is not a systemic issue, but this is something you might want to raise as a potential thing for the school in general to look at. Um, but is this something you could look at in a full class discussion? with your class in an attempt to solve the problem collaboratively. Number one, I probably wouldn't have that discussion in the afternoon when they are wild. I'd want to have that discussion another time of the day. I'm wondering now, do do you uh, typically have a discussion time for your class? Some people do it during circle time. Some people have a special dedicated time that they use to try to solve problems collaboratively with the entire class. I mean, we never want to get the idea that only one adult and one kid who could be solving problems collaboratively together. Um, It could be two kids solving a problem together, something that's causing conflict between them with an adult as the facilitator. Now it's kid-kid problem-solving, not kid-adult problem-solving. But full-class problem-solving is a blast as well, and you, and it's especially a blast on the unsolved problems that seem to affect the entire class. Um, so sometimes, and that doesn't mean that you couldn't do Plan B with individuals over the same unsolved problem if there seemed to be certain individuals who were particularly being affected by a particular unsolved problem. Full-class problem-solving can be used for things like bullying. And this is a good one, too, for things like how the class is acting as a whole, in in this case, um, after lunch, where it's impossible for them to settle down. What a perfect problem for full-class problem-solving. Now, Full-class problem-solving does require a little bit of training. Kids, you can't sort of just, you could just jump in, but it would be easier if you gave the kids a little bit of a primer on listening to each other. 
taking turns, raising hands, so that the discussion isn't sheer chaos. Um, it would be good for the kids to know what we're trying to accomplish here. What are we trying to accomplish here? We are trying to solve a problem that affects the entire class, and we are trying to do it as a group. And the way you do it is by hearing about all of the things that could be getting in the way, all of the things that could be contributing to the problem. And then the entire group is going to try to come up with a solution that's okay with the entire group. Talk about a great lesson in democracy, not representative democracy, not democracy of the type, and these are all fine forms of democracy. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but not democracy of the type where majority rules, which feels efficient, but I fear isn't so efficient. That's where 50.1% are good with the solution, and the solution still flies even if 49.9% are not okay with the solution at all. That's not what kind of a solution we're trying to come up with when we're doing full-class collaborative problem-solving. I find that when you're shooting for 50.1%, you don't care about the concerns of the 49.9%, so long as you've got the 50.1%. Of course, you care deeply if you are part of the 49.9%. And, of course, everybody who's been part of the 50.1% has all has also been part of the 49.9% who are miserable. Why do it that way? Why not solve problems in ways that address the concerns of all parties? Impossible? Uh, soon I'll have video on the Lives in the Balance website showing this going on in a classroom. I don't know how soon, pretty soon, not impossible. Even when there's large numbers of people and large numbers of concerns, it's possible to solve problems in ways that address the concerns of all parties. I could make a political statement right now, but I won't. Uh, how things are going when our class comes back from lunch and what we can do to try to make it better and what people's concerns are about that, why people think that's happening and having a discussion about the different things that we could do to make it better. My goodness, I can't think of many things that are better than that. And uh, don't, don't stop after you've had this discussion. Keep having them. Why should the classroom teacher be the only one with good ideas about how to solve problems? Uh, Kids have great ideas, too. Why not tap into those great ideas? Some teachers already do this, but there's the answer to that one. That's how I would do collaborative problem solving. Um, And I don't know if that's in another radio program, but here's the cool part. Now it's in this one. I think we have time for one more question. Let me see if I can find it. Ah, here we go. I like this one. Uh, Dr. Green, I teach in a parent 
cooperative charter school. Part of my school's philosophy is parents as active participants in the classroom. Each parent, I like that. Each parent volunteers three hours a week to their child's classroom and help to facilitate learning through small groups. Because of this, there are many more transitions in a day. Kids work with up to six different adults within that day who are not trained educators. There is fluidity in the schedule based on how the week is going, and students have different teachers for enrichment throughout the week. Hmm. Sounds like a... My bet is that this is an elementary school, but it kind of sounds like a high school where what I'm hearing is that multiple adults, this is me talking here, not the email, uh, multiple adults are coming into contact with the same kid, and kids are moving from one class to another. My question is, now back to the email, what's the best way to implement Plan B in a classroom where there is more than one quote-unquote teacher and where most of the learning takes place in small groups, shared space, and numerous interpersonal learning between kids and adults. How can I successfully support a single student when most of his or her day is engaged with other teachers? Thank you for taking time to reply. My pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to write. All right. This does not, like I said, not sound so much different than the difficulties one would face in implementing collaborative problem solving in any setting, and high schools and junior high schools come to mind, but a lot of elementary schools these days too, but also inpatient units, residential facilities, prisons, where multiple people are coming into contact with the same kid and that the kids are configured into different groups. Um, Sounds the same. So the answer is going to be the same for all of those. Number one, we need... um, We need a method of communicating so that we know what we're working on with each student and who's taking primary responsibility for solving the high-priority unsolved problems that we have decided what we're going to be working on with each student. Now, I don't – and, of course, the instrument that I'm talking about here is called the Plan B Flowchart. You can find it in the paperwork section on the Lives in the Balance website. Um, the Plan B flowchart is a great place to keep track of what unsolved problems you're working on right now with each kid, who's taking primary responsibility for solving each specific unsolved problem, and tracking the problem-solving progress through the steps of plan B until the problem is durably solved. So it's a tracking system. Um, And it's got all of the really important information on it. Um, What are we working on? Who's working on it with the kid? That's crucial. As I say so often, if we don't designate somebody to work with the kid on a specific unsolved problem, then one of two things is going to happen. Either everybody's going to work with him on it, with nobody really taking primary responsibility, in which case the problem will remain unsolved, or nobody's going to work with them on it, in which case the problem will remain unsolved. Designating somebody is crucial. Deciding what our priorities are is crucial. Tracking the problems until they're solved 
crucial. It sounds like Plan B flowchart could be helpful in your building as well. Now, um, you may need to think about who oversees and coordinates the Plan B flowchart, whether time needs to be built in, whether it's carved out or in existing mechanisms for meeting. Um, how are we going to keep track of all this stuff and communicate about it? If you ask me what's the hardest part of implementing collaborative problem solving in a big system like yours, I mean, there's bigger, but you've still got the need to coordinate and communicate across multiple individuals who are interacting with the same kid. Whenever that's the case, um, we need to be able to talk about it. So you've got an instrument, Plan B flowchart, to keep track, but that doesn't take the place of meetings in which we are reviewing the Plan B flowchart to make sure that we are still on the same page, know what we're working on, know if the problems got solved, and to make this an ongoing process so that we are continuously revisiting uh, each kid and what we're working on with each kid and who's working on what. That's how in big systems... Uh, I help people coordinate the effort, communicate well, and make sure that the effort is as cohesive as possible. Now, that's crucial. Oh, what I was going to say is, if you ask me which is harder in a big system, com the, the communication mechanisms required for doing Plan B well or doing Plan B well, both of which are hard, but well the communication part tends to actually be harder than helping people do Plan B well. All right, now let's talk about helping people do Plan B well. If we feel that we have effective mechanisms for communicating in place, and the fact that, by the way, the fact that the learning takes place in small groups, shared space, and et cetera, um, that doesn't trouble me greatly. You're not solving the problems mostly with individual kids anyways during the small groups and shared space anyways. You're probably doing it in private conversations. By the way, you also need meeting time to make sure that you're on top of what problems each kid is having. This is the thing. Um, in so many buildings, teachers feel so isolated because they feel like they're the only ones who are seeing the problem. They don't know who's working on what. Uh, why should teachers feel so isolated? Decisions about discipline are being made by people in the hierarchy without even consulting with the teachers frequently. Sometimes teachers like it that way, but a lot of teachers don't. Why, why should people in classrooms feel so isolated when they could be communicating with each other instead? But you do have to devote some effort to carving out the time to do it and stick with it. But then there's the other part, and that is making sure that the people who are doing Plan B with the students know what they're doing. And, of course, ultimately, you want everybody in the building knowing what they're doing. You want everybody feeling proficient in collaborative problem solving, but everybody's not going to be good at it in the beginning. So the goal is to have a small cadre of people within the school getting good at it first and making a concerted effort to get good at it first and then spreading it throughout the building. 
You can have the greatest communication mechanisms in place in the world, but if you don't have people in the building who know how to do Plan B, then all that communication isn't going to get you very far. Of course, you can have a lot of people in the building who know how to do Plan B, but if the effort isn't coordinated, if we're not communicating well, all that proficient Plan B isn't going to get us very far. It's both. And so that's, I guess, my answer to your questions. Um, I love your school's philosophy. I love seeing parents be active participants. Um, I love having parents volunteer. Um, not a terrible thing for kids to have more than one adult working with them on during the day. In fact, multiple. All that sounds pretty good to me. If you want to implement collaborative problem solving in a building, two big ingredients communication, proficiency at Plan B. Call in and let me know how it goes. In the meantime, we're out of time for today. Hope you're finding the program to be informative. Talk to you next week on the Educators Panel. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.